0: You know, I've worked in the substance abuse industry for almost two decades. And during these years, I've seen countless preventable deaths from either drug overdose, accidents while under the influence, and suicide that can directly be correlated to substance abuse. You know, I've briefly spoken about clinicians that leave the field because of the pain that's felt when it was a client on their caseload that died. You know, as the education director at New Creation College, I tell my students that we need to make sure that we can be empathetic, which allows us to build a rapport and trust so we can connect with them, but also to remain emotionally disconnected so we don't burn out in the industry. Now, there's very few people anymore that live in this world of drugs as other users, those in recovery, and or work in this field, who've not lost someone from overdose. Please stay tuned for my guest, Teresa Anthony, who's an author and also has lost someone very close to her. We'll be right back. Take
1: back your story.
0: Hey, this is Eric McCoy, and thank you for tuning into High Wall Clean. And hey, this is the show that promotes highness. But remember, the only way to stay high the rest of your life is by doing it clean. There's no side effects, there's no withdrawal. It's legal and it's free. Damn, that sounds good. <laughs> now, this is a show about hope, it's about love, inspiration, and healing. You know, there are a lot of people in our country. In the world who are suffering. You know, from April of 2020 to April of 2021, we had an estimated 100,306 overdose deaths. And that's an increase of 29, actually 29 and a half percent from the 12-month period prior to this, according to the centers from disease control and prevention. Unbelievable. There's also an average. Of 130 suicides every day. And ironically, and it is actually somewhat surprising that suicides slightly decreased in 2020 compared to 2019 by actually 3%. And just to add more fatalities to the mix and approximately 95,000 died from alcohol related causes, which has been The third leading cause of preventable death. Now, actually, this is the first time that I'm aware that overdose deaths have passed alcohol, um, which actually now makes overdose the third leading cause of preventable death. And then alcohol and suicide are actually very strongly connected and actually even more so than other substances. You know, people who suffer from Alcoholism are actually up to 120 times more likely to take their own life than those who are not dependent on alcohol. You know, alcohol can lower a person's inhibitions enough for them to actually act on suicidal thoughts. It suppresses activity in parts of the brain that's associated with inhibition. And, you know, any warning signs or signals that may have kicked in if a person was sober are actually unlikely to work, which can lead to actions they might not otherwise have taken, including self-harm and suicide. Now, it's been found that nearly one-third of suicide deaths have been linked to alcohol consumption. And I have a very special guest today, and her name is Teresa Anthony, and she is the author of Well, the memoir, My 13th Station, and it's a story of her son, which I'm going to actually have her tell us about. And her new book, Hope Springs from a Mother's Broken Heart, Uh, this is 11 mothers who share how they survived the loss of a child. Thank you, Teresa, for joining me on High Wall Clean today.
2: Hi, Eric. I'm so glad that you invited me to join you, and I'm really impressed at all of the work you just presented in terms of your research, because your data is immaculate. It's perfect. And it's very sad um, that these numbers are correct, but they are. And I think it just underscores the challenge that our society has in front of them. Um, only getting worse every year, it seems, but.
0: Absolutely. <laughs> it, it It's, it's devastating. You know, working in the field is hard sometimes, you know, um, I've been in the field for two decades now. That seems like a long time, <laughs> and uh, you know I can't I can't tell you how many deaths. You know, not in the actual program that I've worked at, but uh, deaths of people that completed the program, left the program, and then we hear hear stories of that. It's tough on us to you know clinicians, and of course we've all lost. Uh, you know, I don't really know many people that live in this world that don't know personally people that have been you know that have lost their lives also Mm -hmm. so i wanted to ask you now your first one is my 13th station yeah i wanted to first actually ask you what that title means
2: (laughs) i don't blame you for asking it's uh it's a it's a catholic thing i'm a catholic and uh, I actually was gone for 20 something years and came back to the Catholic church uh, in my 40s. So um, when I came back, I was very drawn toward the imagery Um, around the churches. They have these little pictures. Um, They're the stations of the cross of uh, Jesus, his trek to Calvary to his crucifixion, and then burial in the tomb. And so there's 14 total stations. And I, when I came back to the church, I had a lot to learn. And um, I was, this was one of the things that really um, captivated me was understanding the significance of each of these steps uh, that are, are portrayed. And I was very much drawn and I explained it in my book. It was a really interesting story, but um, very much drawn to the 13th station, which is the one where uh, it is depicted where after christ has died on the cross where they remove him from the cross and they it's very often depicted as uh laying him across the lap of his mother his grieving mother and uh, in fact the the pieta which is a famous um state uh piece of sculpture by michelangelo in the, the it's in the vatican but um that's exactly what it portrays and if i showed you that the image of that you'd know right away you know oh. but, Um, basically, um, so for many years, as I was, you know, learning about the church and going to church at different places and stuff, I would go and take pictures of this 13th station at all these different churches. And I collected them in an envelope and it said my 13th, I know I said 13th station on it. And I would just add more prints as I traveled and saw different ones. So I was kind of fixated on this. Mm. And so basically it just depicts, um, the loss of a, of a son, you know, obviously I'm not the Virgin Mary and my son was not Jesus Christ, but it's the imagery of the grieving mother, that pain, that sorrow in her face, uh, that captivated me years ago. And then when my son lay there deceased that day, when I had to go to the hospital to see him for the last time, uh, and I, I am there with him, um, holding his hand and leaning over him. And I asked the the, uh, grief counselor who accompanied our family, my my ex-husband and I, that morning, um, if she would please take a picture of my hand holding my son's hand. For the last time, I just, I had my, my phone on a chair and I said, do you mind just taking a picture of my hand with his hand? And um, she took the shot, and then it was a day or two later that I looked at the picture she had taken. And Eric, it was a, the full length of my son in the bed with me leaning over like this, grasping his hand. And I knew, I knew in that moment, that someday I was going to write his story, and I was going to name it "My Thirteenth Station." Wow. So that's it.
0: Now you know, a lot of us, you know, and people in recovery, you know, and out there suffering, you know, used substances to self-medicate,
1: you Mm -hmm. know,
0: in a lot of ways. Now, most people, obviously that, you know, follow through on acts of suicide, um, like your son, obviously most likely used alcohol. And I know in his case, it was alcohol um, to self-medicate himself. Is that, is that pretty accurate?
2: Yes, let me give you just a little brief summary of um, of my son's little journey, and I'll keep it small. But basically, uh, my kid was like, his name was Matthew, um, just a really wonderful kid. I mean, you're, uh, every mother's dream and delight. He was just... Uh, responsible and kind-hearted and loving and just a really thoughtful kid. So um, never had any problems with him ever. And uh, he was a top baseball player all the way through high school. He was in varsity as a freshman, you know, um, and he had just great friends and everything. He would just had it all and um, just loved by everyone. So it was when he was 18 and a half, he had just gone off to school um, and he started complaining, he, you know, we kept in touch the first semester there, you know, every week or so we'd connect and he was talking about having insomnia and he couldn't mm-hmm. sleep. It was really distressing where days on end he was not getting much sleep and um, so that was the first sign of something wrong and then um, by Thanksgiving of that first semester he came home and he woke me up in the middle of the night to sit on the end of my bed and sob sob uh just this I'm thinking who is this this is not my kid you know he was so sad and depressed and um so anyway as you mentioned the um you know he was a college kid and you're surrounded by people who party and drink and he was right in there with them And um, I believe that, well, I think he would tell you that he was self-medicating and he tried to sleep at first. He used that and marijuana to try to sleep. And then um, the depression kicked in and he was just trying to numb these symptoms. It was just really distressing. So anyway, uh, over that period of that first year of college, it it was when really um, it it just started snowballing. And then he came home uh, the following summer when he was 19 and said he didn't want to go back and he wanted to change his major and uh, go to fire science program, which I love that idea always. That's what he wanted to do when he was a kid. Mm. And um, so, but while he was home, after being gone for a year, I really saw the drinking. I could see that he was, had a serious problem. Mm. And so um, that's how it just uh, really, honestly, it was only, and of course, you know, I did all the mom stuff. I took him to the doctor to find out what's wrong with him, get his blood work done, did show liver involvement, liver issues showed up Mm. on the blood panel. Um, uh, He went to cat therapy, he only went once and he refused to go back. It was just really hard. And uh, so basically, I got, it was just tragic, you know, to watch your son, um, any, any mother who has a child who uh, has such great potential, and you saw that just wasting away and you see their life crumbling and you just feel helpless. Like, what do I do? You know. And, you,
0: and there was none of that stuff when he was younger, huh? No. It was all at that point when he went to college?
2: freshman year of college. I'm not saying he never drank alcohol in high school. I know they did. Sure. Not, but it was like the normal, you know, occasional party and, but there was no abuse at all. Yeah.
0: But as far as depression too, you didn't. uh,
2: Oh my gosh. He was the antithesis of that. He was just like this upbeat, happy guy. Um, So, and my story by the way, the memoir really is not, it's not fo- focused only on the mental health and the uh, alcoholism. There was another element at play. And, you know, uh, I'm not sure, you know, who all is in your audience, but if they, if there are some believers out there, they understand that there's such a thing as spiritual warfare. Mm-hmm. And um, at the story has a very riveting kind of sub story about what was going on there. So um, it, it helps explain the connection. But anyway, so my son basically and over the next few years, by the time he was 21 and a half, he was chemically alcohol, chemically dependent on alcohol. Mm. Um, and really, it was just, you know, by the time he was um, 23, he was seriously ill, seriously ill. So that's his story. Um, And I'm just bringing you to the point where we, he finally realized he was, he told, called me and said, I'm gonna die, I need help. Mm -hmm. And so that is when I um, took a leave of absence from my job and went to Colorado where he lived. He had a little girl at this point, Um, his marriage had broken up. He was 24 at the time. And I was able to get a leave and go there and stay in his apartment and take care of his little daughter while he was in rehab. Mm. And um, the book and the My Thirteen Station book, the chapter 18 is my favorite one because it's that month uh, I where I chronicle that month where he was in recovery, uh, rehab. And I had such hope. It was just uh, filled with hope, you know. Um, sadly uh and this is this this part is really important i think to everyone listening mm-hmm. i didn't know a thing i i now i guess i should say a little bit about my background um as a writer i've been writing since the late 90s um on all sorts of diverse topics you know so and for different kinds of publications and so um my whole focus shifted after I lost my son, um, a year after I'm about to tell you this part, but um, to now I write only in the recovery and mental health fields, primarily, I would say 90%. Mm -hmm. And I've learned so much, you know, through my son's illness, and my research and writing for the last eight years, in that field. What I'm about to say is critical. So I did not know as a very uninformed, naive mother who just uh, was clueless, I had to read books to learn about addiction when he was sick, I didn't know anything. So um, Beautiful Boy was an amazing book that helped me so much. Um, the big book, you know, the uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, I read every page, and um, I had several books, I was self teaching, but I knew so little. And So they had him in for one month of rehab. And that's all we could do financially, there was no more, uh, there were no more resources for a longer stay. Well, so when we went to go when I uh, went to go get him that day, he discharged, they didn't give me any information other than they gave me a list of they had put him on uh, an antidepressant. And um, there were some I think uh, some contact information for AA meetings in his area and things like that. What they should have done, <laughs> what they should have done is told this mother who is about to take her son back to his house not to leave him. Don't leave him right away. He's vulnerable. And the kid needed six months. He needed six months of rehab. You yeah. know, that, you know. I didn't know. I thought, oh, he's good. He's good to go, and now he can start his life again. And you know, and so before I left, I was there about three days. You know, and and he got himself all arranged with an AA, a local AA uh, chapter, and he got himself scheduled for an outpatient therapy session the next week. And I'm like, cool. Okay, I've been gone a month. I need to go back to my life. And um, four days after I got home. Um, my son, um, I was informed I got a phone call that Thursday evening, Thursday evening, excuse me, from a sheriff telling me, I'm so sorry, but your son, and this was, remember, this is a year before he died. So this was a first suicide attempt. My son had jumped off the fourth floor of his building. Oh,
1: wow.
2: And was being life-flighted down to Denver to a level one trauma center. So um, devastation, just absolute devastation, and truly, that moment was the beginning of the end of his life. Um, he only lived one year after that incident, although he tried uh, valiantly to remain sober for that following year in recovery. You know, went to meetings every morning at 7 a.m. Um, just did everything he could. He had a sponsor working the steps just wanted to, because they took everything from him. He lost his job, he lost his apartment, he lost his daughter, he lost everything. And um, talk about something that would just exacerbate depression. And here he's trying to stay sober. Um, so- Where was he
0: living then? Okay,
2: so he came back to live in California. After okay. he recovered from all of the injuries, he, we talked him to coming, talked him into coming back to being uh, close by. So we had him in sober living near us. Mm. Um, my ex-husband and I, we all lived within 10 minutes. Um, and so that way, because we both worked full time, we couldn't we couldn't keep an eye on him. I mean, we were so afraid he was gonna do something crazy, you know? So um, sober living helped him kind of get started. And, uh, but the big problem was that, so, I guess my point back there was that our our recovery programs need to also educate the family about the monster of addiction and how it works. Mm-hmm. And it, and that means you don't just say here's your, here's your loved one bye good luck to you. You need to put things in place. And um, yes, I know they have to own their recovery. It's theirs to have and not ours. But um, in a case like this, where he lived all alone, he didn't have a roommate, he didn't have anyone there to, you know, call us and say, Hey, you know, I think there's something up with Matt. Right. And, uh, he needed, he needed something with him for at least a few weeks. Um,
0: yeah, I want to tell you, you know, (laughs) there's so many failures within the substance abuse industry. Mm -hmm. Did you guys have like family groups meetings when he was in the program?
2: Yes. So because okay. i was staying in um, the mountains, he 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 lived in he worked for Vale Resorts. So he lived up in Summit County up in the mountains. So I was staying in his place and he was down in the Denver suburbs. So I would three times a week drive down the mountain, I mean, two hour drive each way. I did this three times a week so that I could participate in his recovery. Um, and so once a week out of that was a family group, which was wonderful. Um, he had, they had some really excellent, um, clinicians and, um, you know, some really wonderful exercises, things that we did worked as a group. And I think they were really helpful in this way. Um, and I I'm grateful for the program I thought was really excellent. I I don't have complaints about that. I'm.
0: The, uh, the but it's the it's the discharge stuff
2: yeah and and not what i wish i had said you know he really requires 6 months you know you might look into salvation army or somewhere that could give him a good 6 month block um there was no recommendation or or guidance and yeah. so
0: was there was there um cuz it sounds like in his case i mean it was mental illness was the primary you know <laughs> Um, you know, with, with the depression. Now, what year was this?
2: Okay. So he, uh, well, he died in 2013. Uh, he went into treatment the year prior, the end of 2012. So, so this
0: was really before insurance was, so you paid private. Was that the.
2: Yes. We didn't have, your we right. It was before they started. Um, I think Obama. Um, yeah. The
0: Obamacare, the things. Yeah. yeah.
2: It was right on that cusp. And yeah. So, yeah, we were able to get some scholarship money, some help that way through the um, the recovery program. Um, they did offer some scholarship help, which was great, but the rest of it was privately financed, and that's you know a burden. I mean, yeah. back then it was a really
0: uh, For sure, yeah, you know the this is what I this is one of the things that I hate. Okay, about well, see, and nowadays it's even. More interesting because now insurance does pay, but they want to cut people off, you know. At um, you know, they put it like nowadays, they'll, they'll go through detox and then they'll say, you know, what straight down to outpatient.
1: Oh boy,
0: you know, they insurance companies do not want to pay. And this is one thing that just really bothers me because mm-hmm. you know, clinicians, you know, as ethics, when we look at ethics. You know, our job is to always look out for the best interest of the client, right. never do harm, always do good, you know, treat everybody the same. And, and so as clinicians and especially as a counselor, you know, it, it really is their job to fight for the person. Mm-hmm. You know, if we see somebody that is, you know, is in imminent harm, right. you know, by leaving, mm-hmm. um, the, the program should keep the person. I mean, honestly, that's the way I see it, you know.
2: You too. I, I. But again, they're trying to make ends meet too. and
0: Absolutely. And that's where the dilemma comes, you know, because it is a business too. I mean, obviously, you know, and so, and that, like I was saying, that's what really just bothers me so much about everything. Okay. Um, and I see it all the time. You know, yeah. I see it all the time that well, you know, they're not going to pay. And I get it. I mean, programs can't put everybody in for free because then there's not going to be a program. <laughs> and, but, <clears throat> but
2: if nothing else, tell them, tell them in this case, it was my, uh, not a minor, but a, my adult child. And, um, it, you know, and I had met with his therapist a few times. So he knew that, you know, he knew, everything and I don't know I just think had they just given that little bit of uh, guidance like like don't
0: leave him alone yeah
2: yes he has depression well put him on these meds and you know you might want to consider staying in town for a good few weeks make sure everything's stabilized he's you know he's got to take the reins but you know if he's going to his meetings and has got a support network set up then then that's a good time to transition back to your home.
0: Now where was so and you're right, because you know when anybody leaves treatment, they should never go live alone. I mean that's just the reality. I mean, you know, that that's the setup for failure, you know, is to for somebody to go home alone and and just live alone. (laughs) You know, it develops into isolation, you know.
2: And Eric, Uh, the thing is I've learned since, because this is what I write about all day long now in research is even going back to your place where your furniture is still in the exact same spot. And that that habit sure. of this is where sure. I sat and drank till I passed out every night, you know, that it's just, it's an automatic uh, reflex, yeah. you know, not to mention, um, you know, I mean, I, because I was staying in his house, I got rid of everything I could find with any, like even vanilla extract. In the- right, right. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you recovery.
0: never know, <laughs>
2: <laughs> Seriously. but, um, you know, they, they just, it's just such a vulnerable. I, I have learned yeah. so much about that first year and early recovery. And, uh, and I just wanted to say that while I was writing the memoir, the first book that was two years ago or two and a half now, um, it was really hard, it was extremely difficult, because I had to go back into all of the pain um, that he experienced that we witnessed, um, and that that I and all of the family experienced. But one of the most poignant things in this book, I believe is I included in the book, some of the things I found in his backpack, Um, I found a folder of his worksheets from rehab, from the first he went to rehab again in 2013. And that's later on in the story. But this first one in Denver, um, you know, there are worksheets that they use the therapist and I came upon these in his backpack and I sat there, I was in the garage and I have all these things I'm on the floor, sobbing, reading his answers. And I just feel like, I I watched one of your interviews with another mother and the point she made was so valid that until it impacts someone you love and care about, you know, it's easy to be, uh, you know, that stigma is so real. And, um, you know, people are very harsh in their judgments, um, the things Mm -hmm. that they might attach to someone with a, a substance problem. But I'll tell you, when I read my son's answers and those questions, um, he, he was riddled with so much shame and um, sorrow at what had happened to his life and how he, he even pointed out how I used to be handsome and now I'm just fat and out of shape and sick. And um, the, I think one of the saddest ones was um, the exercise was, imagine you're a piece of luggage. You might know this one, Eric, imagine you're a piece of luggage Uh, Are you a sturdy, you know, a hardcover piece? Are you um, tattered? Are you faded, um, faded out? And it had like six different descriptions of a piece of luggage. And my son selected faded out, you know, and he was at the time 24 years old, that he saw his life himself as just a shadow of what he was, you know.
0: Yeah, I think, you know, you kind of touched on like the stigma. I, I mean, I think that society is a huge part to what we see. I mean, I really believe this, you know, because, you know, and just like you said, I mean, unless it touches you, they don't care. And all you are is a waste of space. You're, you know, you're, you're you know, you're just a problem. Um, you need to go away and and that's the reality i mean you know like i, I started um i'm doing a radio show now it's called mm-hmm. um, it's on johnny rock and roll radio called hot topics mm-hmm. and and on this uh the last couple of weeks i've actually been talking about that like with the the stigma of substance mm-hmm. abuse um where it comes from where it came from you know the history behind like drug laws you know the um and it, it, it's just so horrific to me, and it really bothers me. I mean, that's one of the things I try to do. We fight the stigma of substance abuse and give a voice to those we've lost. That I mean, that is, I've actually wanted to start another one. I got too many things going on, but I wanted to start another one called A Voice to Those We Have Lost. And I wanted to actually make each episode of somebody who has passed away you know and and going in line with like what would that person say today what would what would be you know the uh, a message that could be given you know and cuz i think um i don't think these people have to die in vain that's the that's the reality jody barber you know one of my great friends you know we we met at the event you know yeah. that we were at and uh she's in a she's a beautiful lady you know um you know is out there you know, fighting, you know, fi- fighting with us all, you know, to, to share messages and stuff, you know, she's, and, you know, with this, with the story of her son and, uh, and that was actually the one I was originally looking to start it with. Um, <laughs> I still haven't gotten to it. <laughs> I'm sorry, Jody, if you listen to this, I'm still working on it, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, that's the, you know, that's just where I stand with this stuff is, uh, you know, your son, can share a great message. I mean, I, you know, that's what I tell Jody. It's like, you know, you're, you know, he has saved thousands of lives.
1: Yeah. Oh. You know,
0: Jared has saved thousands of lives. Jody's just the voice for it.
2: She's the conduit. Yes, yeah, exactly. It. Um, that kind of segues a little bit toward my um, recent book, which is, um, yes. the hope Springs book. Mm-hmm. And that book came out of, uh, just, it just, out of my own head. Last year in January, I just really wanted a new project. I, I felt, uh, I don't know, I just, I like that. I like to set goals for myself. But it sounds like you're very similar in this way. <laughs> and I decided that, um, hey, I, I've, I've, at that point, um, you know, seven and a half years at that point, since I had lost my son, and I've learned a lot um, about getting through something so painful and awful. And I know I'm not alone, as you said, a hundred thousand people lost their lives to addiction. And uh, you know, how many from alcoholism and um, suicide. So there are a lot of people, a lot of women who have lost their child. Um, So I wanted to address uh, the book to them, to that niche, you know, to mothers because I can only speak for myself and what I've learned along the way. So when I was thinking about kind of penciling out ideas of things I wanted to cover and make it like a little guidebook for women who are early, say the first couple, three years when the edges of the pain are so sharp, you know, it is so hard. And so I wanted to kind of give them something that they could take with them and uh, work through it. There's a lot of really great practical Um, suggestions and tips in there. And about what the brainstorm I had, though, was that it would be so much richer and diverse if I invited other women to contribute to the book, who have also lost a child, and half of them um, lost their children to a stigmatized death like suicide or addiction overdose. Um, The others were different kinds of losses. Um, One was a cancer death, one uh, an accidental death, you know. But I wanted it to appeal to a a diverse range of of grieving moms. But the first person that came to my mind was Jodi.
1: So
2: I reached out to her. And I, I had met her when I was a newbie. I had only been maybe a month or two into my own grief journey after losing my son when I met her and I she was four years ahead of me in the journey with Jared's, the loss of Jared. And um, I was so impressed by her. I was just blown away at what she could accomplish while being in that much pain, you know? And then I met other women along these years. So I invited them and um, I'll tell you this book because of the different types of um, illness, like for my son, it was depression, it was called a dual diagnosis, as you know, I mean, he had co occurring illnesses, he had, um, primary was his mental illness. And then um, the substance abuse disorder uh, was a co occurring. So he had a dual diagnosis. Um, Some of the moms, uh, it was full on opioids, you know, um, addiction to opioids, and one mother, uh, you know, there were some that had the children, the kids had um, addiction, I mean, one was addiction, and one was just drug abuse, but um, that led to their death, you know, was responsible for their death. So um, there's six of us, Um, one was alcohol poisoning, um, her daughter, and it's just each story is so rich and poignant and sad, but still extremely informative. And uh, these moms, each one offered their own personal um, tools, that their coping tools that help them survive. And that's what's so awesome is that, You know, maybe the reader won't uh, relate to this mom, but she will to that mom, that mom, that one rings a bell, that one feels like me, you know. Uh, So really from um, just, just really from the things that they read, it could be uh, books they read, Bible verses that kept them going, keeping a gratitude journal, um, you know, getting therapy, um, Just taking on projects, crafts, and art, and things that were kind of a a way to kind of work the um, grief through a creative process. Anyway, so, um, Eric, I I think that, and it's selling really well, which is really great. (laughs) I didn't, I didn't, it's such a narrow little niche, you know, I just didn't expect that at all, so...
0: Well, I, and like, like you said, though, it's not, uh, a lot of people are going through this, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: you know? And so, I mean, I wrote, you know, I wrote a book called pain, failure, and misery are the stepping stones to success. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and, you know, it's, it's one of those books again, that is so important, especially today at this time, because of, you know, everything that we're going through, you know? And, um, You know, you're, you and all of those women, you know, that, that, you know, participated in the book, you know, it's what we call transforming our past, you know, so you're taking a painful, horrible, you know, experience that you've gone through, but you're creating a new meaning to it.
2: That's it. And in a way, honoring our child's memory, you know, Jodi with her documentaries and all of her efforts, you know, with the, um political figures that she tries to work with Mm -hmm. and the media that she tries to inform people. My my efforts are more through writing. Every single day I produce content with my goal being I want to inform people. I want to teach people what is available. Mm -hmm. And what's really hard for me is when I learn about something, you know, when I started having to research all of this and learn to write about it, Um, When I come upon something that I know would have helped my son, or I think it could have helped my son, but it just came too late, like naltrexone, for example, like, you know, that's something that he never uh, tried and, um, you know, medication assistant, assisted treatment. Um, And also, uh, for his depression, there's brain stimulation techniques like TMS that are really helping Mm with depression and that was something that we had no clue about and but if i can tell people about that now that their child is still breathing and there's still hope mm-hmm. um that's my way of honoring my son yeah.
0: you know? absolutely i mean it, you know and and again with te- you know with things moving forward too you're getting more medications different things you know that weren't available even back when you know your son had gone through that so there's consistent i'm a huge fan of harm mm-hmm. reduction
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, I, I firmly believe in it. Um, I'd rather see people alive mm-hmm. and on a drug <laughs> if it's going to help. I mean, I really do. I'm I'm a big believer in that, you know, and, you um, know, I think that's some, I think that's just the most important thing is, you know, I wanted to say, so, you know, with that whole stigma going back to that, you know, it's like families, you know, parents, you know, mothers and fathers, you know. Um, You know, so many are ashamed, you know, that fall into that realm. And then, you know, and I don't know if you did this. I I, I was going to ask you on this, but, um, you know, then you have, you know, somebody die and it's never discussed at a funeral. Did you bring it up at a funeral?
2: At at my son's? Yeah. Okay. As far as getting up to speak about it. Yeah. I didn't speak at my son's funeral because I was so distraught. There was no yeah. way I could do it. But I will tell you, if you don't mind, can I read just a little teeny thing? Sure. Um, I need a dog ear here, here because I just think it's that important. So in my in my book, my new book.
1: Yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes. So anyway, I do have a chapter. Um, I'm one of the chapters, the 11 ladies that left their stories. So my each one is about 12 pages. And um, what I I did include that, um, surviving the loss of a child, regardless of the cause of death, takes immense effort and strength. It also takes a lot of support, even if you don't know you need it. Oh, hang on, I think, um, hang on, sorry. I just wanna get to the exact spot that I was trying to get to. No, you're fine. (laughs) Oh my gosh, okay, it would've been good if I had. Here it is, okay. Uh, I can't tell you how many times I hear how do you even get out of bed in the morning or wow I can't believe how well you were doing going through so much grief and loss in a compressed time frame is absolutely awful because I also lost um, the love of my life to leukemia nine months after my boy Mm. so it was a really
0: (laughs) tough year uh.
2: (laughs) yeah I was shell-shocked and just barely functioning on the outside though I still tried to project a a positive attitude. I guess I was trying to avoid being seen as a pathetic lady whose son had taken his own life. I didn't want to be pitied, but for parents whose children die a stigmatized death like suicide or, or an overdose, pity does come with the territory. Not only pity, but discomfort and avoidance too. Mm-hmm. It is too much for many people to process or comprehend. And I think that and I go into that m- more later on in the book, but they don't know how to approach you, they're uncomfortable with the topic. It's one thing if you've lost a child to another sad way that's, uh, you know, socially acceptable. But um, when you've lost your child to one of these, like addiction, overdose or suicide, there's just this uh, fear over around it and discomfort and um so what I do, uh, to answer your question, did I, do I speak about it? Not at his funeral, but I bring it up all the time. When people ask me, how many kids do you have? And this is what you always get asked when you meet someone new within 15 minutes or so, people ask how many kids do you have? And uh, only once did I avoid mentioning my son because I just didn't want to go there, right? But I was so crushed with guilt after doing that, that I said, I never, I vowed never again would I omit my son. So I always now say, I have two daughters and I have a son in heaven. Then the next question, oh no, what happened? You know, yeah. And so I talk about it yep. and I'll bring it up at the dentist. I don't care where I am, you know, um, because... And I, I have a website, TeresaAnthony.com, where I write blogs all the time. And well, you know, I try to do at least one or two a month, but uh, I've written about shattering the stigma uh, and how we need to open this conversation up. This is how we save people. And by hiding in a little corner and not talking about it, it's just festering, you know? Um, so anyway, yes, I am not shy at all about discussing it. Um, and it's amazing and i'm sure you you've found this yourself out there that once you do open that up and uh, and make it okay to talk about it number one the person will relax you know because they're kind of you know and then they just kind of okay she's okay with talking about this and then almost always the next thing you hear is oh my gosh the same thing happened to my brother yep. my sister my son yep. my daughter yep.
0: yeah Absolutely. That is, I mean, and again, so many can relate to it now. You know, I was, I was saying on the with the funeral thing because, you know, I really would love, and I know like the parents probably couldn't do it, but, you know, if you had somebody else that was, you know, connected and somehow that was able to do it, but, you know, to get up and, and again, just be, you know, look, like, you know what, he had problems.
1: Yeah.
0: You know, this is what happened. So it is talked about even in that aspect because I don't see it as, a shameful thing. I don't see it as, you know, it was somebody that was hurting.
1: Yeah.
0: You know, it was somebody that you know, um, you know, was. I mean, struggling drastically. And why would we want to suppress that? Let's. Yeah, but let's
2: thankfully, the priest who did the funeral did. He, he did. Was, okay. And um, he didn't miss words. I mean, he, he talked very clearly to, and it was, you know.
0: So it was discussed there then.
2: It was just not by me. I couldn't. Yeah. do
0: it. And No, and I, I no, hundred percent. I, I, you know, but that's the that's a, like if somebody else did it, that's perfect.
2: Because everybody, you know? there are four hundred people in the room, right? Four hundred people, captive audience, and this casket with my son inside of it, right there in the center. They need to know what led to that. You know, yeah. they need to understand what led to this point. Um, and at 24, 20,
0: you yeah, know,
2: he was 25 when he, or 25. um, and it was just the most, you know, what was shocking. I think what well, we were all shocked because he was on a good trajectory at that point. Um, he had sadly had several relapses over that period of a year and every time, Oh, Eric, gosh, you know, is the most tragic thing to witness, um, not only from my point of view, just just it crushes you every time, but uh, he was riddled with so much shame and guilt every single time. And, and every time he did, it would be one day, he'd fall off for one day, but he'd become obliter- obliterated and, uh, I mean, nearly poisoning himself. That's how bad, you know. Um, And just he would sob and there was so much despair and it kept getting worse and worse and worse and he'd lose a job over it or whatever. And then, you know, the hole got digger, the hole got deeper. And um, so anyway, it was just really shocking because He was on a good trajectory at that point. He was on uh, seeing his friends, you know, out uh, hitting baseballs with his old baseball friends and playing tennis and really uh, seeing his dad and and just super and his daughter was coming to see him in nine days, you know. Um, So for that to happen that day, it was so like cognitive dissonance. I couldn't, nobody could grasp it, you know. And then after a few days had passed, I realized, oh my gosh, the men and his group at the uh, sunrise in you know, whatever it's called, at the 7 a.m. Uh, AA meeting, um, there was a wonderful group of men who were in their 50s who took my son under their wing and he went every morning and they were just the most wonderful people and, you know, for a year, right? And I thought, oh my gosh, you're probably wondering where he is, so... I think it was four days after Matt died, I went to the meeting that morning at seven in the morning, and I, I saw who was leading the meeting, I introduced myself, and I shared with him that we'd lost him and um, that he had taken his life. And uh, oh, my gosh, the outpouring from that group, they got up one after another and came and embraced me and they were so amazing it was it was very touching yes. and then about a week later i got a letter from one of the men and they and i actually put uh two paragraphs or so in the book the memoir um about what he wrote about my son and how he had tried more than anyone he'd ever known to succeed in recovery that he'd never seen anyone try that hard you know yes.
0: Yeah, I'll tell you, and I, I you know, in listening to the story and sense is that, you know, there's there's a huge ambivalent nature to addiction. You know, we all go through this. You know, meth was my uh-huh. thing that almost killed me. Um, but I had alcohol problems, too. And I mean, I was one that, you know, at some point in time in my life, I found problems with everything. <laughs> but, you know, I... I can almost imagine, you know, with him that, you know, he goes through these days of like, yeah, recovery's great. I'm fighting for this. I'm going to do this. And, you know, and then you wake up another, the next day and it's like the way our brains work, you know, that it's like, I don't know why I'm doing this. Why am I doing this now? You know, and I can almost just imagine it that, you know, then he drinks, yeah, you know, that reduces those inhibitions. Like I was saying, yes. all of a sudden fear goes away, you know? And then it becomes easy to do, you know? And um,
2: Eric, this is the thing that's so intriguing about the story. And I'm, I'm not just trying to hawk the book. I, I just really believe in the message of this book and the mm-hmm. spiritual element of it. And uh, I believe, you know, that... <laughs> he was buying into the lies of the devil basically that the devil told him he's worthless just give it up you know save them all this uh, misery he wrote a letter and left it for us and basically saying you're better off without me you know and so Yes, it is a mind thing, uh, whatever's influencing the mind, whether it's the mental health issue, the demon attached, whatever it is, um, it's very powerful and can overcome someone in an instant. And I remember one day talking with him, we'd go on hikes together when he was in recovery that year. And we had the most beautiful conversations on these hikes, you know, but I asked him one day, I go, you know, when you feel tempted, because he'd relapsed, you know, two or three times at that point. When you feel the temptation, the craving overwhelm you, why aren't you reaching out? Why don't you take that moment to to tell us, you know, tell someone your sponsor me. And he said, because it's the last thing you want to do. You don't want anybody to stop you. You don't want someone to get in the way of it. You know, the other thing my son and I included it taught me was, uh, he said, if you want to understand um, what it feels to deal with these cravings, imagine this, he said, imagine you're in the desert, and you're walking for days, and you're completely dehydrated, Mm -hmm. and you're going to die if you don't get something to drink, and you come upon a little pond, and All of a sudden, it's like, oh, my gosh, and you can't stop drinking the water. You drink, 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 drink. He said, that's what it feels like. Like, you can't get enough. You can't get enough. It's like this sustaining thing, you know. So uh, he was trying to explain it in in terms that I could grasp, you know. In other words, in my rational mind, if you feel the cravings, just pick up the phone, you know. But he was trying to tell me that it's way harder than that you know, the craving
0: the- cravings are the true suffering of the addict, yeah. you know, I had, so I had 11 years clean and, um, you know, originally my, my sobriety date was January 4th of 2002, mm-hmm. January 13th, I relapsed after having 11 years. And during those 11 years, you know, I'd been, you know, counselor, program director, clinical director owned a program, you know, oh. so it's like, you know, like every, we should know. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's one of those things. I lost my passion is really what it came down to. I made a couple of stupid decisions. You know, I was, I refer to meth, for instance, you know, the name we always called it was shit, you know, which is kind of a great name for it. <laughs> and, um, and also, um, you know, you could refer to it as the devil, yeah. you know, because it is the truest of temptations, you know, um, you know, your mind all of a sudden just focuses on the good. Mm -hmm. We lose focus on the bad, you know, I like the correlation in the sense with the, with the water, for instance, you know, because for some reason with addicts and there's different debates on why, but you lose a that satiation point, right? So you eat food. You know, and in the mid part of the brain, you have um, that go switch, right? So you're starving, or you're, you know, you know, you're dehydrated, right? And so that go switch kicks on. That's the survival part of the brain, the mid part of the brain, right? There's no cognitive thinking in there. Right. And so normal process is that you would then go find food, you would eat, Mm -hmm. and then you have a stop switch, which is in your prefrontal cortex that says, "Okay, I've reached my satiation point. I'm done. I'm good." For whatever reason, that stop switch is broken, broken. (laughs) (laughs) and so you never reach that satiation point. You know, and when we're looking at addiction and where drugs have the effect, it's the mid part of the brain that is survival. Yeah, what's above survival? Nothing.
1: Yeah,
0: you know, and so that's where it gets scary. I you know, I teach um, at at a school in um, Ontario. And um, for uh, people working to become substance abuse counselors. And I also do some counseling and that's what we, um, you know, I teach on physiological effects and the brain and how all that stuff works. And, you know, for, and it is fascinating. It really is, you know, why, like, why can some do it and others can't?
2: Yeah. I don't, that is the thing. And they don't know. They have not They meaning science has not yet identified you know, for a while, it's a gene, you know, you have the born right. with the gene. Now it does run in families. I mean, we know that, but,
0: but is it nature? Is it nature or nurture? That's the, you know, nature versus nurture is the biggest debate.
2: Right. And so I think we're probably a decade or two out from really understanding what is the mechanism, the chemistry in our mind, our brains uh, that um, causes that faulty switch that shut off um, valve. Yeah. I don't know.
0: Now, some people, you know, one thing they do talk about, which I would agree with, is that, you know, there's there's some form of pleasure deficiency, oh. you know, and I, I kind of agree with it to a certain extent that, you know, for, you know, like I grew up and I, I dealt with depression, you know, when I was younger and stuff as a kid and I didn't get treated. I was just kind of an awkward, you know, kid and and didn't find a lot of pleasure in things. It was just kind of blah through life, you know, kind of thing until... I found alcohol, uh-huh. right? And I remember that first time drinking and I was just like, oh, my God. And then I got horribly sick, <laughs> you know, and then, you know, then I, you know, smoking pot, you know, and, you know, everything that I was doing was just like, wow, this is great, you know, because now I'm feeling different,
1: right?
0: you know, right. I found meth and then that was I was on top of the world, you know, Um and then, of course, I had drastic, my my thinking is truly insane, right? Because, because I would I was the kind of person that I, I went to rehab numerous times, you know, with the thing is, I got a meth problem, right. Now I'm not going to stop other things, but, I, you know, meth's my drug of choice, and, and that's my problem, right? So, I mean, and here's how insane my thinking is. I would say, like, meth's my problem, so what's wrong with crack, uh. right? You know, people are like, what the hell you think?" you know, But yeah, I did that. And I was like, I'm just going to smoke crack. <laughs> you know, I was like, I'm just going to do heroin. Right. You know, and that was my thinking, you know, it was like, I want to be happy, successful and stable, but I don't want to be clean, Yeah. you know? And, uh, and that's why for my podcast, you know, that this idea of high wall clean is so important because it's not about giving up highness, mm-hmm. you know, it's about, you know, figuring out a different way to do it. Yeah. You know, I'm sitting here right now getting high with you. Right. Right. And it's, and it, cause it's that dopamine. It's the same thing. I feel pleasure, you know, in communication. I feel pleasure in teaching. I feel pleasure in, you know, various different, you know, zip lining or, <laughs> you know, and, uh, <laughs> and, and like I said in the very beginning, there's no side effects. Right. It's legal, so I'm not going to go to jail for it. <laughs> There's no withdrawal. It's free, <laughs> and it's free. <laughs> Absolutely, you know.
2: You know, with when I look back, uh, well, and a lot of what you're saying, it's just I have so many thoughts. But when you're when you're what's the word captured into this this addiction vice, you know that happens. Uh, in the brain that uh, just gets you in in the clutches, right
1: yeah.
2: I, I just hope people my my hope is that people become somehow through information sharing stories compassionate towards those who are in that I mean yeah. this is the thing i that what rests with me with which i can 't shake it i mean in, and it 's been eight years and i'm still I still cry over this is thinking about how much my son suffered, how how much anguish he suffered because of this. And he couldn't, he was out of control. He had no control, yeah. uh, just like that first step, you know, he had to admit he had, he had no control. But the suffering that goes on and the destruction of his life and losing everything that mattered to him And I I just get upset when people don't understand they didn't choose, they did not choose when they had a a beer that, oh, I'm going to be this alcoholic and lose everything I care about, you know, that there's something that activates in certain people that really takes over and, and owns them. Mm -hmm. And I think we need a lot more compassion towards that aspect of illness, you know,
0: absolutely. Yeah. And that's why I, and like I said, I think that's why our death rate is so high because there's not a lot of compassion. Mm -hmm. You know, there's not a lot of people that just want to reach out and help, Um, you know, like, you you know, homeless people, for instance, you know, we just, you know, degrade homeless, you're horrible, you're stinky, you're nasty, you're worthless, you know, kind of stuff. We don't know their story. I mean, that's the thing that I always keep coming back to. It's like, you don't know this person's story. I mean, it could be horrific, you know, and, uh, and, and, you know, and that's only a little glimpse of it, you know, with substance abuse. I mean, you know, the substance abuse, they say probably about 40% of homeless have substance abuse problems and mental illness are a good chunk of them. You know, then you could just got the people that can't afford to live mm-hmm. um, that even have jobs, you know, but um, well, yeah, we're, it, we're never, we are never going to find solutions yeah. when, with hate.
1: After
2: my son died. I and I put this in my um, the memoir book. I was at a stoplight in front of Costco and I was, you know, sitting there at the light and all of us and a, and a guy was crossing the street. And as he crossed the street, I could tell he was homeless just by his appearance, you know, and then as he got closer, I could see that he was alcoholic. I, I knew I know what it looks like, you know, yeah. and my heart. Just, I wanted to jump out of my car. I did. Because I thought that's somebody's son. You know, he was probably late 20s. Mm-hmm. And I thought that is somebody's son. It could be somebody's daddy, like my son was, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and I just so wanted to say, go get some help, you know? And instead I didn't, I just sat there saying, Oh Lord, just please, you know, bring him to you. And, and hopefully someone will guide him into help, you know, into treatment." Mm-hmm. but you're so right. You know, we need to look beyond, we don't know their story. We don't know how that young man that I saw
1: yeah.
2: ended up in that place, you know? Um, okay. And anyway, I think it's a human, it's a humanity story. This is a story of humanity, and we're all suffering this life. This life is hard, right? And uh, it's full of pain, and and there's joy too, thank God. But yep. you know, um, our ability to cope with the pain and the setbacks and other issues. Is varied. We all have a little toolbox that we've got inside of us, and and to varying degrees, right? Yeah. And, um, some people don't. Some people don't have all the tools they might need. They need help. They yeah. need. Help.
0: I mean, everybody has problems, you know, and everybody finds the solution that that works for them at first. It doesn't, you know. Obviously, you know, your son for for drinking, you know, he he found alcohol, and it worked. <laughs> I mean, and that's the reality. At at some point in time, it worked for him, you know, and he was like, well, this is great. It's solving whatever I'm feeling. I'm feeling wonderful. I'm not, you know, and there was the solution, right? Now, obviously, he continued with that solution, and then eventually it stops working, and then eventually it becomes your worst enemy, you know, which is basically what happened. But it's interesting to me because everybody has that, you know, like workaholics, for instance, right? Workaholics lose families. They, you know, they give up, you know, normal events. They would know all those symptoms that people experience with substance abuse. Uh, workaholics have except one. They don't have tissue dependency, right? But we encourage that. We're like, hey, go, oh, good job. You know, oh, you're financial, you know, supportive. But here's the cool part, okay? Is that, and I tell clients this that when I work with them, I, I tell them that you guys are the luckiest people in the world, right? And I believe this because they get an opportunity to work on things that other people don't. I mean, think about this: how many people sit down and go, "I'm going to work on my self esteem today," you know? <laughs> and I, I do that with clients. I mean, I, you know, I'll sit down with them and we'll work on exercises, things to improve your self esteem. Nobody else does that. You know, these people actually have an opportunity to become healthier, stronger, better than other people that have never been through it because pain, you know, pain is the more pain we have, the more lessons we have. You, for instance, have experienced a lot of pain, right? Because of your pain, you have stood up, right? And you have done something to help other people. And that's the beautiful part, you know, because not everybody does this, you know, that's the beautiful part about you and what you're doing, you know, is that you have had, you've dealt with this situation, you know, with your child, which is painful, horribly painful. And then, you know, now you're at a place where you're standing up, you're reaching out and you're trying to help people. Sadly, it would be wonderful if we would have these huge advocates without having to have gone through that.
1: <laughs> that's true. But it
0: doesn't happen,
1: no, it, you know, yeah.
0: because people don't care until it hits them.
2: And then you have that impulse, you know, you want to help someone with that pain, you know. Yep. I just wanted to also say, and this kind of sounds weird, but I know that the recovery community is, those are your people. And if there might be one thing that could probably possibly deter uh, a relapse or a suicide attempt. It would be to read a chapter, um, I call it the day, A Day in the Life of a Grieving Mother. It's in my second book, Hope Springs. I outline the um, a, a typical day, uh, my emotional life during a typical day without my son on the earth anymore. I'm telling you, I think if nothing else, it would it would just kind of give pause, you know, that because they all most of them still have a mother living on the earth, that they might think twice if they if they knew how it will impact their mom yep. if they should lose their life to this. So um, anyway, I just wanted to point that out.
0: No, um, yeah, absolutely. I think that is is so so. I had um, uh, Jody. Um, we, we actually periodically I'll do this. She'll come on zoom for, for, you know, while I'm at the program and we'll show her documentaries and then she'll talk to them and stuff. And that's really the point behind it too, you know, is to remind them, you know, that you don't want to do this to your mom or dad, you know, and, um, and it, it is, it is something that you can tell they do think about. They're like, yeah, you know what? I, I mean, I don't. I mean, every one of them. See, and that's the that's the thing, you know. Your son, I guarantee, was a great person, right? Um, and and I and I know that notice this every day. Okay, when I work with clients, when you look at while they're drinking or while they're using. Sure, we could look at them and say, "Damn, what a piece of shit!" You know, I mean, right? I mean, that's you know, you kind of you know, people can say that, right? But here's the thing, though, when when we get clean, and people find themselves and who they really are, I find people that have substance abuse problems to be some of the most beautiful people out there. You know, they're passionate, they're excited. They they love. I mean, genuinely, like have a a love that you don't see with other. You know, and I think I, I don't, I'll tell you what. Something too, I was thinking about this was that I think substance abuse people, right? We have we're probably more emotionally honest than other people, right? But that creates problems, you know, because. Most of us don't like emotions, (laughs) right? But I do believe though, because I mean, I see this and and so many people, you know, this just like, there's a passion and there's a sight, and there's such amazingly good, caring, loving people.
2: When I was in, someone suggested to me when I was suffering so much, when my son was Heavily alcoholic, and I was freaking out. Like I just was sick every day because I couldn't do a thing. They said you need to go to an Al-Anon meeting. Go find an Al-Anon group, and so I went, <laughs> went online, type it in, da, da da, find this meeting. Go to the meeting. I show up. I go and take a little seat in the back uh, of the room, and the meeting ensues, and I realize. I'm at an AA meeting okay. <laughs> I got mixed up on the time. And I realized I was at an AA meeting. Okay. Mm-hmm. So Eric, everything you just said is a hundred percent. I was yeah. so impressed. And so I wasn't going to get up and leave. It would have been really rude. So I am so grateful that I stayed. And then I did go to a couple of AA meetings with my son also later, but, um, I was so um, impressed with the honest, just uh, bare honesty uh, yeah. that people would present their stories. And there was such, uh, like you said, there's this thread, there's a, a sensitivity. I don't know. Maybe that's yeah. part of the vulnerability of becoming addict addicts um, is this sensitive nature, you yeah. know, because my son had that. Totally. Yeah. Um, so, but anyway, I was just like blown away. The integrity I saw, um, just the honesty. Uh, it was it was wonderful. And, yeah. and really all, I think I went to a total of three or four meetings altogether, AA meetings. And it was the same, and one was in Colorado. It didn't matter where, it was always that experience where yeah. the honest, um, and you're right, I'm sure that, you know, that level of honesty could could bite you you know if it's um expressed in the wrong time or place or whatever but uh, I think it's a beautiful quality
1: Um, and
0: I think you're right because I think um and I that's something I do see is a lot of sensitivity you know I was when I was younger I was very sensitive you know overly sensitive and I and and, you know, so I many, and that's what I actually teach clients is to stop being so sensitive. I talk about that all the time. You know, it's time to move away from being sensitive. It's, it's about the time to stop giving a fuck what other people think about you. <laughs> you know, I mean, honestly, I, I, because, you know, part of, you know, part of the healing, I think is really about the person figuring out who they are being you, you know, drop all the baggage. You know let go of all this stuff what you see is what you get you know and i and i think that is such an important thing for people to get to because that it's something i worked on with myself i worked on this so hard you know finding me figuring out who i am you know um and and then being me what you see is what you get you know and i don't care what you think <laughs> <laughs>
2: really freeing if you can ever get there, you know, it's very freeing.
0: It it really is. And that's the thing I, you know, like, and again, I just you know, like with your son and and you know other people that have, you know, I guarantee your son was a beautiful person, you know. Um so let me ask you as we're coming to the end here, I want to I wanted to ask this question. I was, you know, when I'm when I was thinking about the you know the other thing that I wanted to work on was, you know, um a voice to those we have lost. What is something, and I know everybody has this, when you think of your son back before the substance abuse, back when he was a kid, when he was young, what is the thing that sticks in your head? What is a saying that he used to say that pops in your head or, or anything that really kind of radiates with you? Can you think of anything?
2: As far as a saying, um, not really, not really a saying
0: okay.
2: or anything, uh, it was more of a, a of who he was and how he how he moved through life all the way through until the end. Even okay. as an addict, he still had this. Okay. There was this gentle, kind, thoughtful nature, at how he treated everyone. Um, just this beautiful kind heart. And that's what I will always remember about my son.
1: Yeah.
2: And maybe he didn't use a particular saying, but he just exuded kindness. Mm-hmm. So
0: Yeah, no, that's great. You know, that uh, like I was saying, that's kind of the thing that really I, I've thought about for a long time is we want to, I want to I want people to hear the that, you know, these aren't bad people, these mm-hmm. are good people, these are loving people, these are people just like you said, is what I see across the board in general. You know, I mean, you've got your exceptions, <laughs> but but the truth is, is I don't think there really is, because I think the people that we think are exceptions, I don't think they're them. I don't think they're being who they are, you know? And I think I, that's, you know, cause I, like when I work with clients, I see this, you get some of the clients, you're like, oh my God, I can't stand this guy. You know, <laughs> you know, we don't say that, of course, but, <laughs> but I start to realize though, you know, and I really kind of look at them and I'm always that person that like, how can I get to this person? That's what I always think about. How can I get to this person? And when I start looking a little bit deeper, I start realizing that they're not being themselves because there's a, you'll see like glimpses where they're genuine. They're different a little bit. And then they quickly resort back to, being that behavior that we don't like, you know? And so again, it's about separating behavior from the person.
2: (laughs) But it also goes back to your point about that you made earlier about finding your way to you, finding your way to that honest, authentic you and living that. And, um, and while they're in treatment, um, working with you, they haven't gotten there yet.
0: And well, the good thing about the one thing I do like is that, um, I actually work at the outpatient, right? I'm not currently working anywhere in the residence because I also have the school, you know, which is in the same place. But uh, I get to work with the outpatient, outpatient, which I like because they're a little more f- further down, you know, <laughs> but uh, but they're still in that same place. They're not there yet. You know, they still have a long ways to go. And I, And I agree with you when you said that, you know, like any short-term treatment for like residential for somebody is absurd, you know?
2: It's a complete waste, really.
0: Yeah, I think, I mean, I honestly think like six months, you know, I mean, I really, that's the way I see it is like, you know, these people need, you know, and I was fortunate in 2000 and, um, 2002 that I got arrested. You know, I know it sounds crazy, right? And I actually got arrested four times in six months in 2001. <laughs> and so I was looking actually at 15 years in prison, you wow. know, but And luckily that didn't happen, but, um, I did do time, you know, I did have to do time. Um, but part of my sentence was a six months residential after I got out of custody. Right. So I had about almost a year near clean when I got out of custody. And then I had six months in a residential program. So I had a year and a half basically after I got done with the residential program. And then I, I opted and decided to stay in a sober living for, for a while you know, and so I did long-term, you know, because I had done it many times before. I didn't trust myself. I didn't have faith, you know, because if I looked at my past, I didn't have a good yeah. record.
2: <laughs> you just say you had that two-year block pretty much. If you add it all up, it's almost a two-year block of, of time. Yeah. That's what it takes to change the chemistry. I mean, you're completely rebuilding your neural pathways, you know, yeah. and it doesn't happen overnight. It takes a long time. Yeah and uh, to establish new healthy habits and all of that stuff you have to do. It takes time for those to become routine, you know. It does. And also practicing recovery skills. That takes time. You know, you don't just walk out and know how to uh, be. (laughs) You know, you have to do all those tools that you give your clients. It takes time to to be good at it, to, you know, be effective at using those skills and stuff.
0: Yeah, I did not want to leave. Uh, I didn't want to get out of custody. Yeah. And that, I know that's crazy, but like, you know, because I, I liked, I felt free. I mean, ironically enough, freedom was something I realized is actually an internal, not an external thing, you know. And that freedom, and I realized it, right, at a moment when I was sitting, I was being transferred from one place to another, right, and I was sitting in a holding cell with this guy. I had no idea what we were talking about, but I remember I started laughing. I started laughing so hard. I was crying. My, my stomach was hurting, right? I hadn't done that in years, and I felt that highness, right? Um, And I felt so good that, um, I was afraid to leave, you know, when I finally got my release date, um, I, I didn't want to go. I mean, I know it sounds crazy, but I felt this freedom being locked up in a jail.
2: (laughs) Well, I, I know we're closing out, but I just have to say, you made me think of something. Um, I told you, we took hikes, my son and I, during his year in recovery, um, before we lost him and and I remember how he had changed after that first suicide attempt when he jumped off the building uh there he just was never the same it was like just like he was still him but he wasn't the same as he used to be right. and I, there was just this kind of uh, guarded something in him and then one day on a hike we talked about baseball because he loved baseball so much. And I said, you know what, Blue? His nickname was Boy Blue. <laughs> I named him that when he was a little kid. But <laughs> later on, he just became Blue. But I said, Blue, you know, you need to play baseball again. And he was like, No way! Look how old I am. There's no way. And I said, Yeah, no. There's these comeback stories, you know, the guys who beat addiction and come back. And and he was really talented baseball player, right? And, and I said, do you miss it? He goes, I do. I do miss it. And I'll tell you, Eric, in that little sliver of time, I saw the essence of my son back in his eyes. I saw it, you know, and it didn't last. um, But I just saw that glimpse of him, you know, and I'm thinking I'm looking at your banner behind you, you know, high wall clean. And I thought, Sadly for him, he didn't get to that place. He didn't get to the high place yet. Okay. He'd, he'd go 90 days max and he'd fall down. He'd yeah. get 60 days, fall down, 90 days, fall down. You know, um, it's not till you can sustain it a good year or two that you yeah. get to that place where you can enjoy like you're feeling of freedom in jail. Okay?
1: yeah. yeah.
2: And feel free that, you know, you're not gonna be a problem for yourself, you know? Yeah. And just enjoy life in, in, in sobriety. You know, my son never got there.
0: Yeah, it does take time. That's, you know, there's that, you know, whatever brain damage he had caused, there's a neuroplasticity. Neuroplasticity mm-hmm. is where your brain kind of rewires itself to function as well as possible with it, with what it has. Mm-hmm. It can take years, though. Yeah. You know, and that's, you know, I mean, you know, after, you know, maybe a year, it's not in a place to where it's really bothering you. but it does take time. (laughs) I want to ask you, um, and I always ask this question is that if you were to give a message to somebody out there suffering to family members,
2: don't beat yourself up. If you find yourself kind of falling into the enabling camp, because I'm not saying it's good. I'm just, let me just give this person some advice your love for your child means you have an instinct to try to help them survive. It's just a mother's father's whatever instinct to help their child survive something that's life-threatening, which is what addiction is. However, understand that enabling them by doing, putting out their fires and paying their bills or furnishing them with things that they should be working and and earning themselves is actually prolonging their addiction. You're prolonging their suffering and their disease. You're contributing to it. I learned this the hard way. I am a self-admitted codependent enabler. I say this in my book, not just one, but both.
1: Yeah.
2: <laughs> and it's because I love my child. I wanted him to survive and I would have done anything in the world to help that, to make that happen. But it's only later that you start getting clarity. Yeah. And so I would tell somebody whose child is currently suffering to keep that in mind, to allow them to do for themselves what they can do. Um, and that will help motivate them to change. That yeah. will help motivate them to do the work to change instead of uh, you know us mommying them. And keeping them in their addiction.
0: Yeah, there has to be pain. Yes. You know, pain is what will, you know, push people to sometimes do the right thing, you know. Right. Okay, so everybody, check out her book. Um, where can they get it?
2: Okay, I sell both books on Amazon and Barnes and & Noble and Apple. Apple is only the ebook version. version. Um, I think my books are best held in your hand and read this way because they're very intimate and... But some people love their e readers. So that's cool. Um, Also, I do have a website. So it's Teresa Anthony, Teresa has an H, TeresaAnthony.com. And um, it's not like I sell anything on there. I do have a lot of really good, though, informative um, blogs, I write that um, cover all the topics, not only the topics of, you know, someone suffering from addiction, mental health issues, uh, but also from a grieving, um, a grief journey standpoint too. So um, there's a lot of really good uh, content on my site, on my website. So
0: Very thank good.
1: You. Thank you for having me.
0: Absolutely. I'm so glad uh, that we did this. Hey, I want to really thank everybody for listening. Uh, check out our other shows at highwallclean.org. You can also get into uh, Walk a Mile My Shoes, which is our other podcast with Lona Curie. And, um, and again, I want to thank everybody for tuning in, keep getting high, all right, but let's do it clean. I'll see you. Thanks.